We're starting a series this morning called One Another, and it's actually very challenging, uh, this series, to talk as Christians about what it means to live our lives uh, towards one another in peace, in joy, in love, in truth, in confrontation, in, in trouble, in reconciliation. And here's why. We live in a really complex time where we have wonderful technologies, but we also have uh, the problem of having a lot of the technologies in our life cause us to um, become very private people, to become increasingly individualistic people, and to also to be consumeristic people. None of these things really help us relate well to one another. I have the iPhone 4, and I don't have the 4S, and I don't have the 5S, and I'm actually happy because I'm getting reports that uh, wives are upset with their husbands because now they have Siri, and now they have no reason to talk to their wives because Siri has all the answers. But I want to ask you, does anybody remember the landline? Some of you are like, landline? How do you spell that? <laughs> landline. It used to be this thing that we had uh, where when you wanted to answer the phone, you had to go to a single location, you had to pick it up, and you had to sit there with it. And you, you really were forced to be around other people, Right? I grew up uh, in the early 80s. I remember my mom coming home from Radio Shack with the most amazing thing. It was just fantastic. It was called an extension cord. (laughs) Now, when you're in eighth grade and your mother comes home with a cord that can take you from the telephone in the middle of the house where everyone can see you. And, you, and it's so long that you can take it down the hall into a closet <laughs> to talk to Barbara Amodio <laughs> for indecent amounts of time. It's just fantastic. Now, the landline, I mean, we don't even know what it is anymore because our technology moves so fast and because our lives are so presented with really wonderful things that have the potential to connect us, but ironically, oftentimes find us very alone, very isolated, very private, and therefore very much challenged around how to love one another. The word that the writer to the Hebrews uses is the word meeting together, and it's actually the word synagogue or epi-synagogue. It's the word that we use to get the word congregant or congregation. And it's, uh, it's not the same as its associated word, the aggregate. What is an aggregate? An aggregate is a bag of rocks. It's a bunch of things together that have one thing in common but aren't interrelated. Are we an aggregate? No. We're a congregant. We are a congregation. We are the church, and the church is something that is interrelated, it's interdependent, it relates to one another. Now, I don't want you to be romantic about this, because I don't know if you've actually ever gotten together with a whole bunch of people and tried to live, tried to love. I mean, it's vacation time, so I'm going to bring this up. How many of you have gone on extended family vacations? 23 of us, Destin, Florida, on the Gulf Coast. 
Three different houses. Now, it might look romantic to have that picture on the beach with everybody in khakis and white shirt. <laughs> we know. We know the comp. We, we know that little Joshua had to be wrestled out of the ACDC t-shirt in order to get him to the beach. And we had to Photoshop the thing because you couldn't stop these guys from doing... You know, it's just, just a picture is, is challenging. So I don't want you to be romantic but I, about the notion of one another and being c- together and the church as a family. But I want you to know that the miracle of Christianity, the miracle of the Christian story, is that we can actually break out of being isolated people. A break out of being lonely people. Break out of being estranged people. Break out of being people in conflict with another and actually live a life where we are loving one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on in love. It's very powerful. So this morning I want to do three things with you. I want to talk about how we get purified in order to love one another. I believe our first act has to be a vertical act, not a horizontal act. Getting our relationship with God right first, then with our neighbors. And then out of that, how we spur one another on, how we can actually confront one another, challenge one another, live accountably with one another. And then balancing that out, how we encourage one another. So these three things. First, purified. You know, the writer to the Hebrews is coming to an apex in chapter 10. He's coming to a place in chapter 10 where he's finally getting to say these words. Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to Him. We don't have to be isolated from Him. We don't have to live in guilt with Him. We don't have to feel ashamed every time we wake up. He's saying, let us draw near to God. We can draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance that faith brings. Having, listen to these beautiful words, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now these are technical terms. Let me unpack what he actually means by this. The writer is talking about the priesthood. And in this book, he's moved all through a whole bunch of different topics. In the beginning of the book of Hebrews, he says, will angels make us close to God? No, Jesus is higher than the angels. Will will the temple make us close to God? No, God has has abolished the temple and now uh, He has found a way to actually put His Spirit, His presence in our hearts. We are the temple because we're gathered here today. Will the priesthood bring us close to God? And it's the closest answer because in the New Testament times and in the Old Testament, the priesthood did bring people close to God. Here's why. Because all through the year, people could bring their guilt, their shame, their remorse, their regrets to the priest and offer a sacrifice. And their hearts would then be heard by God and they could feel assurance that they could finally be in God's presence and have His smile upon them. But the sin of humanity is so great that once a year, the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, that's when he would actually bring all the guilt, all of the cumulative guilt of all the people and of himself into the very Holy of Holies of God. He had to have a rope tied around his ankle and he had to have bells Why did he have to have bells on? Because he was moving past the court where all the people could be and past the inner 
sanctuary where the priest would be to the very holy of holies. And he had to go behind a large curtain and he had to offer the sacrifice. And if he, the people heard the bells stop, that's when they knew that the priest was not pure and their guilt would not be removed. But when he came out, there was great joy because then they knew that God's smile was upon them and the priest could say, may the blessing of God be upon you. May the Lord God make his countenance shine upon you. May he he give you peace. May he lift up his face on you. That's what the people wanted to hear. You know, the New Testament miracle is that Jesus is our high priest. That's what he's communicating in this passage. Why? Listen, nobody was made to be alone. And nobody wants to be alone. The great sacrifice of the high priest was that the the high priest went behind the curtain alone. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the high priest of high priests. It was Jesus who went to the cross alone. His friends abandoned him. He was alone. He was alone when he was scourged. He was alone on the road. He was alone when they hung him on the cross. He was alone and suffered cosmic aloneness when he said to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken Jesus is made alone so that you and I no longer have to be alone because he takes away our sin. Friends, where are you at today? Did you walk in here today feeling guilty, afraid, ashamed, lonely, in conflict? Jesus, you know Christians, don't you? Jesus is the one who makes you understand that you have access with the Father and confidence to come into God's presence. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. If you're not a Christian, you can have this today. You can experience this today. Give your heart, give your stain, give your sin to Jesus. I really believe that's the beginning point for any church to be able to be together and love one another and spur on one another and encourage one another. If we don't have that, we're just a country club of people who gather together and always try to keep our act up and always try to keep our act together and always try to save face, right? And we're never safe. It's only when we get our relationship vertically with God straight through understanding the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can actually engage in all the rest of the things we're going to be talking about through this series. That's the first thing. Purified heart gives us confidence to come to God and and be with Him. Then to begin to be with others. And it brings us to the second point. Spurring one another on. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says. And let us consider, let us think... Let's reason, let's plan, let us consider how we may spur 
one another on toward love and good deeds. The word spur in the original language is, it means two things. It first means to provoke. And it also means to irritate. And the Bible's given us permission to irritate one another. How do you like that? <laughs> but in a good way. In a good way. We're to spur one another. We're to irritate one another. I don't think that any of us can handle that unless we get our relationship with Jesus right and get our hearts purified. I know that we can't handle it. Uh, spurring one another, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. See, it, the Bible is saying that if you just go to church twice a month and you're anonymous, you're never really going to grow. And you're never going to stop the loneliness that you feel. And you're never really going to become a better human being because you're not going to have a chance to have other people see things in you that you can't get rid of alone and have them love you in such a way that it can actually be extracted from you. Let me, uh, let me give you an illustration of what this looks like from, from uh, the life of someone I have seen. Go from being an anonymous person who was just a kind of church consumer to being somebody who was actually able to be spurred on. Uh, my friend Tony, I met him in 1994 when he and his wife got married in a big, beautiful uh, white church in Charleston, South Carolina. And the receptionist was in one of those halls with those big Victorian columns, with those really big, wide uh, hallways, and the floral arrangements. They would just, oh, my Lord. I would just bless his heart, whoever did that arrangement. Tony and Zan. Zan grew up with my wife Catherine in, in, in Louisiana. And uh, she went to the University of Charleston and she married Tony. He was a Delta uh, airline pilot. He was from Wisconsin. And uh, had this beautiful wedding. Tony was very gregarious. And uh, the night before uh, the wedding at the rehearsal, we began talking and he, he began asking me questions. And, and I had been married a year at that time. And so Tony said, I remember him, I remember him looking at me saying, Jay, tell me. What's it like being married? And I, I, I could tell from his look, he, he wanted a certain answer, and, and here's what I said. I said, well, the thing that most stands out about being married is, is how selfish I am. I mean, he wanted to hear, you know, we, we're a perfect match, and, and we're really getting everything we wanted. No, what came out was, I'm staggered by how marriage is showing me how very selfish I am. Now that I have to live with someone, who doesn't always put things back the way I want them. And I remember him looking at me like I had three heads, like, that's not what I wanted to hear the night before my wedding. Fast forward 10 years, 2003 and 2004. Uh, I had, uh, in, in that time period, um, left Washington, D.C. Uh, with my wife and my, my young daughter and moved to Aliquippa, uh, where I became a youth minister and went to a Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, um, had our second daughter Lydia there, graduated, got called to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Not a bad gig. <laughs> Lo and behold, we get to uh, Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, in the little town outside Hilton Head where we're ministering, Bluffton. Guess who lives there? Tony and Zan. And, you know, Zan, she was an Episcopalian, so she had to have a church where they knew how to use a dessert for her. I can tease us because I'm part of that. Right? <laughs> and so they started coming to the church. We had Church of the Cross. And, and Tony was just a guy who was following his wife. And she was just a, a gal going to church because it was the right thing to do. 
And, 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 and I kept thinking, how can I get this guy? I, I, I invited him to uh, an oyster roast. He said, oh, that, was, that was good. You guys, are, you guys are normal. You guys are normal. He went on a men's hike. Uh, he did the Bible for dummies, had all kinds of questions. And, and finally, uh, we made a mistake. We didn't consider him. Here's what happened. Uh, we had our annual stewardship drive. And at the stewardship drive, we sent out letters to everybody and asked them, what are you going to pledge this year? And we asked Tony and Zan, what are you going to pledge this year? And then they didn't respond. And anybody who didn't respond, we just sent them a follow-up letter. We haven't heard from you. Tell us what you're going to give this year. And I was just enough friends with Tony that he told me, that really makes me mad. The church shouldn't be asking me for money. Who do they think they are asking me for money? Here's why. The, we, sh- we shouldn't have sent him that letter because he wasn't ready for that letter. Because Tony's relationship with God was kind of like our relationship to our insurance broker, our tax accountant, and our doctor, right? You, you get a hold of them either when there's been an accident or when you want to be reassured that everything's fine. And that was his relationship with God. He wasn't walking with the Lord. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't love Jesus. He just wanted an insurance card. He wanted to get a jail-free card like everybody does that's just a religious person. But here's what happened. Finally got him to join a men's Bible study where he knew guys were going to get real. And I remember he was in my breakout group. Must have been an accident. He was in my breakout group, right? <laughs> 13 or 14 of us around the circle. And the opening question, and I didn't make it up, the opening question was, share your junk. I embezzled from my company and I'm a felon. I lust. I've been unfaithful. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm totally a materialist. I can't stop trying to get more stuff. All these guys were just, it was unbelievable being so real. And we got to Tony, and he just couldn't handle it. He was like, oh, I'm a Delta pilot, and I'm from Wisconsin. And everybody from Wisconsin's happy. <laughs> He's like, ah. Uh. <laughs> but something happened to him, because after that, we start, he started talking more about it. And finally, when he came to Christ, he said, you know what, Jay? I realized I was faking it. And I was scared. And you guys, I can't believe what's happening here. I've been looking for a, a group of people who will keep me accountable. Here's what happened to Tony. Tony went from being anonymous to being known, to being involved, to being a person who serves, to being a person who is accountable, to a person being vulnerable. After we left South Carolina to plant a church in Pittsburgh, uh, Tony and I talked on the phone. He said, guess what? I'm leading a men's group. We're doing a men's weekend. See, this is a guy whose life got changed and who had incredible fellowship and incredible contact because he allowed himself to be accountable to others, to be spurred on, to be irritated, to have other guys say stuff to him that he didn't want to hear and his wife couldn't say so that he could be changed. Do you have that? If you don't, you need it because we all need to grow. See, when we get our relationship with the Lord God right, when we understand, hey man, He is not judging me for what I brought to the table. He's judging me for what He brought to the table. And His table is clean because He's purified me. Therefore, I can now go out and be honest and vulnerable with other people because I'm safe. And because they're going to love me properly. That's the church at its best. And I know it doesn't always work that way. But it's the church at its best. Finally, encouraging. You know, there are different kinds of churches. There are some churches that do spurring on very good, don't they? Yeah. 
All right, buddy, you signed the contract and the covenant, and you're out of line. Knock it off. You know, no, no. That's, the Bible is so balanced and so beautiful. It does tell us to spur one another, but sometimes we don't need to be spurred on or irritated or confronted or accountable. Sometimes we need to be encouraged. We need somebody to see something inside of us that we don't see in ourselves, right? And then to come behind us and say, hey, did you know I see this in you? You're very giving. You're very kind. You're very loving. You're very strong. You're very wise. I see that in you. I'm considering you for that. We all need that. You know, I said uh, that in my first year of marriage, uh, Catherine and I struggled with um, selfishness. And as our marriage has grown over these 20 years, here's one of the things we've discovered. When we first got married, we weren't able to encourage one another. We were both very critical of one another. We had, uh, let's just say some wedding china got broken. (laughs) Here's the reason why. Hebrews 10.25 says, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And, And here's the thing about encouragement. You know, it's impossible to encourage someone that you're competing against. Did you know that? My, my wife and I grew up in a society, this is the same society that we're all from, that tells us that you always have to be in front and you always have to be on top and you always have to save face and you always have to make sure that everything's fine. From your SATs to the house you live in to the job you have, you always have to make sure things are right and you're right. Without Jesus, there's no other way. And even though my wife and I love Jesus, and even though we went to a Christian college and we had a Christian worldview, we still found ourselves competing against one another. And it really caused us to be very unhappy and unable to encourage one another. But here's the reality. After 20 years of marriage, here's what we discovered about one another. I am very gregarious. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> I am very quick on my feet most of the time. <laughs> I have 40% more muscle mass than my wife. But over and over again, if that's what we're bringing to the table, what's that going to do for my wife? My beautiful, slender, thoughtful, deeply relationally connected wife who's really good at planning over the long term. You know what it does to a marriage? It caused me to always feel like I'm blowing it because I think I have Asperger's because I always say things that make people feel terrible. And I look at my wife and she always says things in such a beautiful, soft, elegant way compared to me. And she looks at me always finishing projects and always ending up with the goal. And both of us feel terrible and so we're always criticizing one another. You see this? What are your relationships like? Do you... you, fundamentally see yourself as constantly competing with everybody else? Or can you see yourself as someone who begins out of the knowledge that Jesus has made you okay? Somebody who can start looking at the beauty and the giftedness and the strengths of others and then to encourage those things. It really has made a huge difference. And 
I really want to challenge you. If you're single and it's in your friendships, if you're in a relationship, it's in your, uh, it's in your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you're married and it's in your spouse, uh, if it's in, in, in your coworkers, if it's in those people who uh, you interact with within the church, how can you encourage other people? So we have these, uh, these three things, um, I believe, that are, are starting points that will allow us to um, move beyond um, the, the privatization and the individualization and the consumerism of our culture that really um, stultifies us or, or stunts us in being able to connect with one another in, in transforming ways. Uh, and we have instead these beautiful things from the Scripture to be purified by God, to be able to spur other people on in love, and to be able to encourage one another in profound ways. So will you please uh, uh, bow your heads with me as we come to the Lord in prayer as we close. Uh, Jesus, thank you for walking that road in Jerusalem for dying outside of the walls on that hill called Golgotha, for choosing to leave the beauty of the Trinity where you had perfect community with one another and taking all of the loneliness of the cosmos onto your shoulders and dying for us so that we would never have to be alone. Lord, may we begin to see the beauty of your church as a group of people who are purified and therefore can spur on and encourage one another. We pray this in the name of our mighty Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.